everybody. How are we? I know, I know. We just made you clap at money. And, but I really, man, my heart is, is full today. Uh, my heart is full just being here with you. Thanks to Anna and to Shibu for leading us. Um, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. Uh, how do you see the world? I realize in the moment that I just said that question, there's many ways you could answer that. And you could be like, well, you go on Google. Google Earth is pretty cool. Or you could cop a plane and you go travel. I, I don't mean like how do you practically go take in the experiences around the globe. I mean, how do you perceive how the world should be? How, how do you imagine a right world? Some of us are uncomfortable that I use the word right. As if to say, who are you, dude, to tell anybody how the world should be right, right? I mean, like, we, some of us, we like pluralism is our number one value. We're like, well, everybody can be right in the world that I think is right. And then just go try and practice that out and then come back and tell me how that goes for you. How, how do you envision, how do you see the world? This is actually a question that is being asked of you on a daily, on a weekly basis. This is a question that you are confronted with time and time again. I got confronted with this question, how do I see the world? How do I think, the, how do I imagine the world should be? I was confronted with this the past two weeks here in Kansas as I imagined if I was the superintendent of schools. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> right? Or, or um, I, had, I had this conversation last, last week, last Saturday. I had all these conversations with my family members who were like, I got to pay money to watch the Chiefs? You're telling me I got to pay money? This is not right, is what I was told. <laughs> Sorry, Peacock, we, you got us all, I guess. How do you see the world? What do you think is right? This is... Um, Always before us, this is what happens in your news feed. This is how you confront the situations around you. This past week, um, a whole, there, there was a, a, the World Economic Forum happened this past week. I know all of you watched with riveting fashion here at Davos. Anyone, does anyone care about this? I would love to know. Really, truly, did you watch? Did you, there's three people. Okay, you're a CEO of some international company somewhere. But this, this like makes big news. This is really huge. And I actually did. I tuned in for a little bit of it because I was curious, like, what's the big deal? I usually just see like Jeff Bezos looking really suave in the Davos outfit. Like it's more about fashion than it is about the economic side of it. But um, this, this year I tuned in for a little bit and the, the conclusion, the cl concluding remarks, the chairman of Davos the World Economic Forum gets up and he talked about his vision for how the world should be and how everyone came together to say, this is our vision. Maybe you could care less about, you know, global uh, entrepreneurship and corporate globalism. Um, maybe you're more of the person who a week and a half ago tuned into this. This is called CES. This is where you get your flying cars and your microwaves that talk to you and the robots that are going to take over your house. And this year at CES, this is Consumer uh, Electronics, uh, I don't know, show, uh, something like that. Uh, and uh, this year at CES uh, in, in the Davos of America, Las Vegas, I'm talking too fast for you. Am I? Am I? Uh, in Vegas this year, uh, the number one concern about the vision for the world was, of course, AI, 
What are we going to do about AI? Did we already kill ourselves? Is this going to be good for us? How is this going to work? How do we adapt this technology into? And there's this question. How do you see the world? How do you think the world should be? We call these things summits. Summits, the World Summit or a, 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 a trade summit. And it's a really interesting word because it harkens back in my mind to a really important summit, the summit of summits that Jesus took back in the day. Oh, man, that was a really good preaching move right there. <laughs> because Jesus goes up a mountain and he summits it. And, and if you've ever hiked before, you know, a summit... Is a, is a walk with a purpose. It's a walk to see something. If you go to the top of a mountain and it's just crowded by a forest and you don't see anything, you took a walk. But if you get to the top peak of a mountain, I'm serious, if you get to the top of, if you summit a mountain, you summit a 14er, the reason you put all that effort in is because of what you see, the vision that you get to behold for what, what the world is like. You see everything from a higher altitude. You can see farther into perhaps the future. And what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is he calls a summit. He, he literally goes up the mountain and he, he looks out across uh, both the people and the land and he, he says, this is how I see the world. This is what the future should be. It, he, I mean, this is funny to think about for Jesus because he doesn't say it this way, but, you know, Davos and CES, they're all saying like, if I could make the world this way, here's how I would make the world. And Jesus is kind of like, hey, if I could make the world here's how I'd make the world. And I think it just is, is important for us to recognize the fact that Jesus is giving us a vision for his kingdom, a vision for how he thinks the world should be. And, and I just think that makes us pay us a little bit of special attention to his words because right off, the, right off the bat, right from the get-go, Jesus goes against the grain of our expectations. I'm so gra grateful for Brad and his message last week. did a phenomenal job kicking off this series with um, the, the Beatitudes. Didn't he do, did you appreciate it? I know. It's so good. And, um, and Brad, Brad walked us through the first couple of, of Beatitudes, and I just remind you what they were. Jesus starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And I think if you were in the crowd that day, you'd look around and you'd go, that's not, that's not exactly, well, okay, I guess we could start there if we have to. I guess, sure, Jesus, you're going bottom, lowest common denominator for all of us, the bottom shelf. You're helping us all just kind of get a feel for where we're going. But if I was in the crowd and Jesus started with the, the, the poor in spirit, I'd kind of be like, well, if he starts here, I wonder what's next. You're like, let's, let's, what's the next level of society? And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, right. <clears throat> sounds related. Doesn't sound better. Sounds worse. What's next? He goes, well, blessed are the meek. I, I can't get past it. Monty Python, that thing where they're like, the Greek. They hear Jesus wrong the whole time. It's great. I just can't. That's my own. That's my own. God made me this way <laughs> to laugh at that joke. And here I am telling you. The meek, right? The, the, those who have power but don't exercise it. The, those who, who actually are willing to um, yield their power to other people. And I think Jesus probably would have gotten canceled at this point. Except for they were all up a mountain and no one could go anywhere. Right? So they, they say, okay, what's next? And he finally gets to the one that, like, I think stirs the crowd. He says, well, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I, 
I think if we're paying attention to what Jesus is doing, it's at this point here in the, the fourth beatitude when we recognize there's a pattern that Jesus is setting out for the way that he sees the world, his vision for the world. There is something strategic about how all of these work together. And, and I want to, you know, I want to point it out to you this way. If we could, we could show it, it actually is a, is a series of descending steps. If you can imagine a staircase, I don't know if this is an appropriate rise over run, but this is what I came up with. And um, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Right? It's kind of the, the, the upper stair. And then he says, well, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We, just hang with me, aren't we so accustomed to starting at the bottom and moving up in the world? And yet what Jesus has done right from the beginning, right from before we, before we could even realize he was doing it, he has flipped the paradigm and said, well, no, I'm not going to start at the bottom and work my way up. I'm going to stop at the top. And at the top is all those who recognize their need in this world. As if to say, you can't understand anything else I'm going to say until you realize that what you need is to realize you're needy. To, to give up, to, to deny yourself, to, to realize that there's a self-sufficiency that you do not possess. And everyone living in Johnson County said, ouch, right? I mean... Douglas County, I don't know about you, but Johnson County, we're all like, ouch, poor in spirit. And Jesus is leading us on a downward journey. I've titled this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, The Downward Ascent. It's a paradox. The Downward Ascent. And ascent is something that goes up, a you know, downward ascent. Because every step that Jesus pushes us forward on this journey, he's actually giving us progress, progress and forward progression, but he's leading us downward. And isn't it incredible? We're going to get through the, the, the next three uh, here today before our time is out. Um, and we're going to wrap all of this with communion. So that's where we're, we're, we're headed. But Jesus is going to keep pushing us into a deeper and deeper humility, a deeper and deeper self-forgetfulness. And in Jesus' vision for how the world should be, this is how it goes. This is the most blessed, successful, virtuous life in God's world. That alone is enough for me to go, I don't, I don't get it, but I'm in for it. And so I want to pick up where we left off last week. Um, Jesus catches everyone's ear with this one, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When I kicked off the introduction to the series two weeks ago, you can go back and watch that on YouTube if you missed it. I, I shared, uh, there are essentially four uh, Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S. I always have to spell it because it sounds like something else. There's four groups of, of, of worldviews that kind of existed in Judaism in this time. And the uh, historian Josephus is really helpful for us to understand maybe the most uh, plausible way that this worked out. But one of the, the groups was the zealots. These were people who were those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness. They were power hungry. They were bloodthirsty. And they were looking to dominate and control their country again. And I imagine when Jesus loses everybody with the meek, he comes back and says, well, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And from the back of the crowd, all the clubs went in the air and everyone said, hurrah. Right? I mean, death to Rome is essentially what they would have, would have said. And I imagine Jesus in this moment, you know, he's sitting down, he's the, the beginning tells us that he's taking the position of a rabbi, he's teaching, he's sitting down on a rock, and I think he holds, I think he's smiling, I think he knows, I think he knows that these people are there. 
I think he's smiling as if to say, like, yes, 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 I knew that that would appease my brothers to the far right. Uh, But let me, for a moment, I think he puts his finger in the air and says, let me for a moment show you how this righteousness comes. He says, next, blessed are the merciful. And it got really quiet. Because hungering and thirsting for righteousness, having this deep zeal, which is a good thing, this desire, it's a beautiful thing, that there will be righteousness in the world, that's such a great ambition. Jesus is not against that. But he's upsetting the ways that we think we will achieve that. He says, blessed are the merciful. And the zealots lower their clubs and they scratch their heads and they go, this guy's crazy. Merciful. Nobody's merciful. I mean, the Romans showed no mercy. The zealots fought fire with fire and showed no mercy. One of the reasons that mercy is so unimpressive is because mercy requires, mercy requires pain. Mercy plays in the midst of our pain. Something bad has to happen to us. We have to be offended. We have to be wounded. We have to be hurt for us to have an opportunity to show mercy. You say, that's not entirely true. My kid in his sports has a mercy rule. And I would like to point out that the mercy rule is inappropriately named. You know, here's how it works for us, right? Like one team is like running up the score on these other kids and it's like little giants played out in real life again. And um, uh, Danny O'Shea's team is just getting crushed and the other team pulls their quarterback because they don't want to embarrass the other team. We should really call it a pity rule. But when you say, how was the game today? Oh, it was fine. We pity ruled the other team. It doesn't sound so merciful, does it? So we just go ahead and call it the mercy rule, even though it has very little to do with mercy. If that's the only way you show mercy in this world, by the way, you are not merciful. Because mercy comes at a cost. Mercy comes when you are the one who has been wronged. And Jesus looks out amongst the crowd and he says, I know that there's this vision for how this world should be, but in the kingdom that God is bringing about, mercy is a virtue. Mercy is how, merciful is how mercy is distributed. I, I don't... Let me be honest with you, I don't like being merciful. I don't like the moments when I have to exercise mercy. In those moments when I'm wounded or I've been treated unjustly, my reflex is not for mercy. My reflex is to get even, right? You go Rambo. You say, they drew first blood. You say, I I didn't start this fight, but I'm going to finish this fight, right? I mean, isn't that kind of how we feel? And that's the same as it was back then, too. There was... The merciful were weak. We, we think that they gave up their power, and for what? Why would I ever do that? That's the question. Well, the clue to why mercy is so important in God's kingdom is actually told by Jesus in another story later in the book of Matthew. And I won't read it to you, but I'll summarize it for you. There's a king who, who's ruling over this realm, and there's a, a servant of his who owes him a really large debt. 
It's such a large debt that he wouldn't be able to pay off this debt in two lifetimes. Uh, recently, there was a person who tried to calculate for inflation the amount of money that this person owed the king. So they took the biblical value, kind of adjusted it for inflation in today's terms. They came up with this number. It was twice the national debt of America's, uh, like to, to whoever we owe the money to. Is it China? I think we owe it to China. Twice the national debt is what this guy owed the king. Just like bonkers money. And the king called in the debts. And this guy came before the king, and the king said, well, how much does this guy owe me? And the guy says, twice the national debt. And the, guy, the king goes, well, where is it? And the, the servant goes, I don't, I don't have it. And the king says, well, then to pay, you will pay with your life, you'll pay with your kids' lives, and you'll pay with your wife's life. This is a story Jesus tells. You pay with all these people's lives. And the servant is so delusional he goes, but sir, I'm working on it. If you could just give me a little bit more time, I'll have your money for you. I mean, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus is trying to highlight for us the impossibility that this guy will ever pay him back. This guy goes, no, no, but if you just give me a little bit more time, like time's my problem, not resources or capacity, time. And some, Jesus says, something about this king's heart was moved. And he looks at the love that this guy has for his family and this commitment that he has towards the king, and he says to him, my servant, Forget it. I will absorb the cost. I will write off your debt on my balance sheet. Because of, 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 of what you said and because of how you are, you are in the clear. Your debt's been paid. Go. I mean, I, I think all of us think that's how our national debt is going to go. I think that's in the future. We're just like, it's just going to disappear. But Jesus says it happened for this guy. And on the way out of the court, he's walking out, and he sees a guy who owes him 12 bucks, a, a burrito at, at Chipotle, if you get guac. And he sees this guy, and he realizes, hey, I bought you that burrito at Chipotle at one time, but you never paid me back. And he, Jesus says he puts the guy in a headlock. This is what he says. He grabs him and grabs him by the head, and he starts to accost him and says, where is my money? And the guy goes, I don't have it, I don't have it, I don't have it. And the, this, this servant who's just been forgiven all of this money looks at this guy and he's got him in a headlock. And he says, I can't believe how wicked you are. And he throws this guy into prison. Well, the king hears about this, of course. And he calls the servant back. And he has a reckoning moment with him and says, I forgave you how much? And you held this guy's life over his own head for $12? And in the story that Jesus tells, he points it out. He says, you are merciless. And because of that, you will pay with your own life. And he switches their place. The servant goes to jail and he releases the guy who owed him 12 bucks. This is what Jesus is getting at. Is that those who are merciful in this world will receive mercy. But those who have rejected the mercy that they've been given, who reject to act out of the mercy that they've been given, will not find, ultimately, mercy. See, it, it, what Jesus is trying to say is in the world as he sees it, the world that it's supposed to be, the vision that Jesus has for this life, those who have truly received mercy, those who know the debt from which they've been forgiven, those are the ones who will show mercy because you cannot give what you have not received. Friends, nothing will change your life more than the knowledge that your unpayable debt against God has been paid in full. Because Jesus paid for it on the cross. That was my amen line right there.
And you've ultimately, this is true, you've ultimately been shown mercy by the one who held all the, the deed to your debt. God expects us then to give to others what we've received ourselves despite, here's the hard part. Here's why this is unpopular. God expects us to show mercy to others because we've been shown mercy from God despite the times when we have the power to exact justice and revenge. See, mercy plays in the midst of our pain, but mercy also operates when we have the power to get even. This is why this is so paradoxical. Because when I have the power to get even, after someone's inflicted me pain, I rarely fail to take my shot. Don't you? You try to, you try to be cool about it. You try to be calm. You try not to be petty. But you say a word. You twist the knife. You withhold something. Jesus says in my kingdom, the merciful, the merciful are the ones who are blessed. I was um, sorting this out with one of our pastors on staff here this week, uh, Pastor, um, pastor Michelle. She's our kids pastor. And Michelle, you guys don't know this, but she helps me with almost all of my messages. She's so helpful. She made this comment. I, I do, Michelle, I love you, but I always do a Michelle impre- impression, and it goes like this. She goes, oh, dude. That's how every, I love Michelle for that. It's always an oh, dude. She goes, dude, I had to learn mercy the hard way, but it was really profound. And I was like, well, say more, Michelle. Like, I, how did you learn how to, how to just show mercy the hard way? And she went on to tell me about one of the hardest moments, one of the hardest seasons of her entire life, one of the hardest seasons maybe for anyone's life she went through. And she just shared how it absolutely revolutionized her life. And I, I asked her, I said, Michelle, that was actually truly profound. Can I share that with everybody in our church? And she said, I would love for you to share, to share this. And so I, I asked her to write it down. Here's her words for how mercy has worked in her life. This is Michelle speaking to you through me. She says this, one of the most life-changing nudges from God came at a time when I felt powerless and broken. She says, I was going through a separation and divorce. My daughters were five and one, but God challenged me to be merciful with my words about my soon-to-be ex-husband and stop talking negatively in front of our daughters about how he had hurt me, his own weaknesses, and his mistakes. That's deep, isn't it? Here's what she says. My first response to God was, dude, seriously? This is too hard. I can't do that. I wanted to take the easier way out of ruminating and blaming their dad to anyone who would listen. But God helped me see that each telling of the story would deepen my own helplessness and cause serious damage to my daughters and my ex-husband. With time... I felt so strongly God nudging me to avoid trashing my daughter's dad in front of them. I especially didn't want him to do that about me. The first couple years were challenging, but it got easier with practice to extend mercy with my words. And God brought such power and healing. As adults now, our daughters are so thankful for this gift. God truly used mercy to bring healing and flourishing into my life. So grateful for Michelle's courage to share that with us. Um, I feel like we applaud her for that. That's just really... 
What Michelle experienced was the pull towards cheap justice, the easy way out. But God had something better. God had something deeply forming inside of her, this character, which had the surprising effect that not only was this mercy for her ex-husband, not only was this mercy for her kids, but this mercy was ultimately for Michelle. Michelle gave mercy, but it also came back to her as a mercy for herself. And this is the way that it works. Are you merciful or are you vengeful? And Jesus says, in my kingdom, as I look out, this is what I see in the world is that those who are merciful, mercy will be given to them. Jesus is going to say a whole lot more about that in the coming weeks. I'm not going to say anything else about that because we'll get to that. But, but the, there's a question. Am I merciful? Do I take the chances that I have to stab someone in the back or to get even? Or do I let God sort it out on his terms? They're, the pure in heart are the ones that Jesus mentions next. The pure in heart. Those who have mercy forming their character, Jesus says, will become pure in heart. And the promise that Jesus puts over this is, is simply this. I'll read it to you. He says, blessed are the pure in heart. Everybody say these five words with me right here. For they see. Do you know what you just said? Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Um, be thou my vision, Lord of my life. I want to see God. I want to know God, how you look at me, how you see this world. Jesus says, you will see God, those who are pure in heart. As I've been ruminating on this for the past couple of weeks, this one singular beatitude, this, this one blessed statement that the pure of heart will see God has become to me my absolute favorite promise in the entire Bible, short of call the name of Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This promise that the pure in heart will see God is something that just lights me up because as a pastor, this is what I want for my life. This is what I want for your life. This is what, this is, you know, we oftentimes, Brad and I, Craig, we'll get these questions about are the vision we have for Heartland. People go like this, so what's your vision? I actually do it in a demeaning voice when I ask it, but I'm not going to do it now. Right, I'll do a little bit. Pastor, what's your vision? That's how I hear it. What's your vision? And here's what I hear when you ask me, what's your vision? I hear this. When are we getting a pickleball court? Will we ever help end homelessness? When will our worship team release a Grammy-nominated worship album? Are we ever going to take what we've got, this really great thing going here, and franchise it and reproduce it in other states and other cities and other locations? These are really fun ideas, aren't they? They're really, you guys have great ideas. They're, they're important projects, incredibly important. But I think all of these pale in comparison to what we're actually going for here at Heartland. You know what our vision is? It's that you would see God in your life. Jesus didn't say blessed are the building makers, blessed are the pickleballers, blessed are the Grammy-nominated musicians. He said blessed are the pure in heart. 
because they will see God. What is the point of your faith if not to see the places in which God is at work in your heart? I can think of no greater vision for our church than to be the type of place where you show up and you're confronted with the fact that this week God was at work in your life if you could see it. That today in this moment, God is calling out to you to speak to you, to, to, to shake you up, to welcome you in, to, to say, hey, I've got something better for you. You're, you're giving yourself to lesser things. If only you could see me. And Jesus gives us a promise that there, are, there is a characteristic of all of his followers that helps us see God, and it's the pure in heart. When Jesus said, blessed are the pure, this is another one of those moments where all four of these groups, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots, they all would have leaned in and been like, hurrah, the pure, because they were all so concerned about purity. They're all, this word pure, it's the word uh, catharsis, actually, is what the Greek word is. It, it's um, this catharsis, or kathos, is, is the Greek. And it just it concerns itself with, with bringing cleansing, right? You have a cathartic experience. Like when the, when the chiefs beat the bills, that's cathartic. That is just a cathartic moment. When the Packers lose, you're like, ah, oh, all is right in my Chicago world, right? I mean, like, everything is it's cathartic, right? Because it's a cleansing, right? And, and we've picked up this word catharsis or cathartic because it's, it's cleansing. And, and every one of these groups had some sort of cleansing purity ritual that they'd follow. In fact, the Pharisees were the best at this. They had a ton of laws to help you understand how to stay cathartic or how to stay clean. Hundreds of laws. There, there were um, purity rituals around. If you bought a pot from the wrong type of person, like, not pot, a pot, a clay pot, to be precise. <sighs> if, if, you, if you got it from the wrong person, there was like three steps for you to actually clean or cleanse the pot, clay pot, for you to be able to enjoy it. Gosh, we need to update our commentaries because that's <laughs> where I got that illustration. The, the Sadducees were priests. They were people who would often give sacrifices to bring purity. The zealots were after ideological purity. It's a very uncomfortable reality for us after what's happened in the 20th century and the world regarding ideological purity, but that's what the zealots were after. They wanted, they wanted a theocracy and they were willing to force their way into it. No one was more pure socially than the Essenes. The Essenes, this was a group of people who, who fled. They retreated out into the wilderness because they wanted to keep themselves pure. There's nothing wrong with this. This is a good ideal. James will talk about this. And one of the th ways for us, or John, I think, it says, dear children, keep yourself free or pure from the world, the stains of, this, of sin in the world. But when Jesus says, blessed are the pure, he's not talking about religious purity or legal purity, social purity, or ideological purity. He adds two words that change everything. The pure in heart. And this is just like hungering and thirsting for righteousness and finding out that the way you get righteousness is by actually showing mercy. Jesus says, yes, you can be clean on the outside, but you can have a terribly wicked heart that is dirty. And in the kingdom that Jesus is building, there's, there's, this, there's this pull, not just towards cleansing and catharsis. There's a better word for what Jesus is talking about here. It's the word integrity. It's to be the same on the inside as you are on the outside. And Jesus is going to talk a lot about this in, in the Sermon on the Mount, so I don't want to say too much. But, but this whole principle that the pure in heart, they're the ones who have integrity in their life. Their inner life is, is, is matched with their outer life. 
The greatest example of this, surprisingly for us, if you're a Bible person, you'll hang with me. If you're not a Bible person, let me just teach you something real fast. There's a guy in the Old Testament named uh, King David, very famous guy. He's a little kid that killed Goliath the giant. He also became king over Israel. And in the Bible, David is celebrated as being a man after God's own heart. And this is really interesting. David's an interesting character. Every once in a while on Twitter, there's like uh, um, all these arguments over King David, whether, whether he's villain or hero. Because um, he was a king and he ordered people to be killed. He was a king and he, um, we, it seems like he had an, well, he did have an inappropriate relationship with Bathsheba, but how that came about, there's a lot of questions around that. He doesn't always seem to be a really godly guy. And yet, in the midst of all of this, David's lauded for being a man after God's own heart. He celebrates integrity. And I want to ask you this. How is it that someone could have a pure heart and yet do such wicked things? It seems like he's a divided person. Here's how. It's because David knew his need and the need for mercy. And he fell on God's mercy time and time again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. That's Psalm 51, verse 1. A couple of verses later, I don't know where this is in the slides, but he says this. He says, God, in the midst of his repentance, he says, God, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The reason that Dave, David, uh, my, my grandfather says this in one of his writings. He says, the reason that David is called a man after God's own heart was not because he was sinless, but because he was single-hearted. There's so many verses I could point you to that David writes about his heart being set towards God or his face being set towards God. It, it, with integrity, he made Jesus, well, not Jesus, but he made God, right, pre-Jesus, he made God the focus of his life. He would live today what we call the Jesus-first life. At the center of who he was, the animating force, he wanted to please God, and the moments when he didn't please God, his heart was wrecked by that. It was ruined by that. The actions on the outside would cause turmoil and chaos on the inside. And David would be single-hearted to say, God, you're most important. Which is ultimately why when he says against you and you only have I sinned, all of us feel like, gosh, where's justice for Bathsheba? Where's justice for Uriah? But David's acknowledging my heart is in turmoil because I've ultimately offended God. This is an integrity to his faith. The pure of heart. It doesn't mean that we live our lives perfectly. It just means that we live our lives in a way that acknowledges everything that I do has to be for God's glory. I mean, this is like tomorrow you go to your, your boardroom to sit around a conference table and your thought has got to be, God, how do I honor you and your principles as I lead my company, as we, as we walk into a new year, as I, as I go to the gym, God, how can I work out in a way where you're forming my heart so that I can be pure? As you um, go to your kids' games, as you watch the game tonight, dear, dear Lord, let's talk about that for a moment. As you watch the game tonight, I mean, you might get anxious, you might be anxious, all right, let me, I feel like I gotta counsel you for a second. Tonight, you might be on edge, okay? Just a touch. And here's a pure heart, right? You can care about the game all you want, I, come on. But something greater has happened in the world than a football game. You know that, right? Is that news? Is that news? It's not news? 
And, and God wants us to live in every situation, our face towards him, saying, God, create in me a pure heart. Why? Because you get to see what God's up to in the midst of everything. And that's what Jesus says. I've got to make up some time here, so let me keep moving. Because I want to get us to communion here in a second. Jesus lands the plane here by saying, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart. He takes us one step lower. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And it's good to be a peacemaker. I read an article this week that said the threat of war is rising in more places around the globe than it ever has in recent history. I also read that rates of anxiety and depression are continuing to increase. We lack peace today. I would recommend it's because many of us in the church haven't taken up Jesus' encouragement to be peacemakers. I'm resisting the urge to say we've been peace fakers, but that's just cheesy pastor talk. Because I don't, I don't know that we're, we're faking peace. I just don't know that we're making peace. We haven't taken this so seriously that our, our call that Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, this is, this is an active verb. This is someone who, who recognizes there's tension in between relationships. There's tension in a family system or in a community system or in a, in a company. And they, they get in between. They kind of mix it up. They say, hey, this isn't going well. Can we find a way to get peace in the midst of this? The peace that Jesus is talking about is not surface level peace at any price. You know, we're just going to all get harmony and, 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 and be able to do our jobs together while underneath the surface there's a tempest brewing. What does our world need? Not just like unilateral decisions that force peace upon other people. We don't need the peace of Rome, which comes in and starts wars for peace. We need peace that comes because people have found the Prince of Peace, who gives us a, a pure heart because of his mercy. Jesus is linking all of this together to say, in my kingdom, the kingdom that I see, the ones who are adopted into God's family are the ones who have been shown mercy and have been given peace. I waxed really poetic at Christmas over Caesar Augustus and how he called him, no, leave that back up here, and how he called it um, the, the peace of Rome, Pax Romana. Caesar Augustus was the number one peacemaker in this time. Actually, when Jesus ushered, uh, said these words, it was Caesar Augustus Tiberius who was on the throne. It was the adopted son-in-law of Caesar Augustus. They all had this thing with their adopted sons, uh, apparently. And uh, Caesar Tiberius also called himself, surprise, surprise, the son of God. Jesus was very political. We don't like to think that because we have a, a separation of church and state expectation in our country, but Jesus went there and kept poking the bear time and time and time again. When Jesus looks out and says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, who is he talking about? He's talking about the ways that we expect people to rule and reign over the world. There is a peace that is greater than the peace of Rome, he says. And, and not only that, there's not just one peacemaker there is an army of peacemakers. They're truly the ones who are sons of God. This is um, what Paul gets at when he says the followers of Jesus, he tell, he's telling the, the followers of Jesus in Ephesus, he, he gives them this like 
this metaphor, this picture of what it looks like to be living in the world as a follower of Jesus. And he gives them like this Roman picture of body armor for battle. We call it the armor of God. If you're a church person, you kind of know it as the armor of God. And we have this like strange, very Roman picture of what this is because um, Paul uses very Roman uh, sword and, and breastplates and, and, and shields and all this, this imagery. One day I'll, I'll do this for 21st century warfare. We'll have, you know, drones and we'll have all this other stuff. But for the picture that Paul gives us, the image, he, he actually calls out what we're supposed to do to be peacemakers. This very warlike image has something very peaceful about it. He, he calls, he says that the gospel comes with special shoes for your feet. Um, they're, they're specific to the activity. And this past year, I've learned a lot about myself, and I've, I've learned that I like running. And I've got now too many pairs of running shoes. I have more running shoes than I have anything else. Why? Because running shoes help you run better. Did you know this? And Paul's like, hey, just like you'd have specific shoes for the activity you're in, the gospel comes with shoes. And the shoes are called the gospel of peace. Which is this imperative for us to walk through this earth and to declare the good news that God has brought peace to this world. It means wherever you and I go, wherever we find ourselves, whatever community we're living in, whatever business we're working in, whatever clients we're serving, whatever country we're walking on, we ought to be the ones who are declaring peace with our lives. So here's the vision that Jesus gives us. He says, in this world, you will be satisfied with your righteousness quest. But it's going to come not by you exacting justice. It's going to come by you showing mercy. And you will see purity in this world. But it's not going to come because you've just cleaned the outside world. It's going to come by renewal of your own heart. And you will have peace. But it's not going to be a peace that you walk into. It's a peace that you're going to walk through and bring with you. The invitation from Jesus is for us to live this out. And I love this vision, the summit that Jesus gives us, these three high points in the summit. Because unlike Davos, where everybody gets up there and says, here's our vision for the world. You know, next year they're going to say the same thing they said this year. We have missed our targets on these things. You know who doesn't miss their targets? It's Jesus. Year after year. Year, if I had to give an economic report of Jesus' success, year after year, Jesus has brought mercy to my life. He's brought purity into my dark heart. And he's brought peace into my world. Has he done it for you? The only way for you to live in this type of world is to actually acknowledge that you cannot do any of these things on your own. But we have Jesus, who is all of these. He is our mercy. He is our purity. He is our peace. The rest of this series is going to be us kind of showing how Jesus walks this out. But I want to ask you today, have you come to Jesus to receive participation in this kingdom? I am... Um, I got a phone call at like 7.15 this morning. Um, my, my grandma passed away. She was really old. She loved Jesus. 
She did not always love Jesus. She loved Jesus. It's a really beautiful thing when at the end of your life, your son can call his son and say, she's at real peace now. Because Jesus had changed everything. You know the, the promises, the they wills of the Beatitudes? My grandma's experiencing all of them three hours after she passed. And I get so amazed that, Jesus, this is what you make possible for me. Not just that my, my afterlife, the, the life after death, but that my life before death could be changed and marked and radically, radically altered because of who Jesus is and what he's called me to. And it's only possible because Jesus himself became mercy for us at the cross. It's only possible because the pure-hearted one gave up his own life at the cross. It's only possible because, as Paul says, he made peace for us by the blood that he shed on the cross. So here, here we are today, and here you are. And I want to invite you to come to the communion table, to this moment where we celebrate the fact that mercy, purity, and peace are possible because Jesus has made them so, that the Lord has had mercy on us all. The second chance is available to us. All we have to do is to partake. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to just take a moment here to thank God before you come up and just have a moment with God and say, Lord, search me, know me, but also God bless me. And he certainly blessed us because of the body and the blood of Jesus which is given to us. And if you're not someone who follows Jesus, I want to encourage you to take this moment and consider that. All these people are going to move to different stations here to help us uh, participate. There's two in the back. There's a couple up front. But we also have a couple of people who are going to be on the wings of the, the walls here to just pray. And if this is a, a moment for you where you go, man, I don't have these qualities in my life of mercy or peace or purity. But I see Jesus offers them. I, I'd love for you to pray, to pray with, with any one of the people who will be around just to pray. And then uh, in a moment you'll take, and then Anna's going to dismiss us and We'll go through our day. But I hope you do so seeing the fact that God is with you. So Father, you've given us so much to think about, so much to walk into. And I ask that in this moment here, we would just have hearts that are full with the possibilities of what you made possible for us. Because you settled once and for all the war that waged against us. We can walk in with mercy, with purity, and with peace that is all unfamiliar to us, but you graciously give to us. So we just come together and we say thank you to you. You're so good. When you're ready, you can come forward and take the elements.